Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. We have Ashley McGirt, who is the founder and president of the WAO Therapy Fund. She's a psychotherapist, TEDx international speaker and author who has been featured in Forbes, MSNBC, The Young Turks, OWN, Bravo and more. Ashley has received a Master's of Social Work from the University of Washington and she also holds a Bachelor of Science in Psychology. Ashley currently owns and operates her own private practice. In her private practice, she focuses primarily on racial trauma, depression, and anxiety. Ashley actively works toward destigmatizing mental illness and reducing higher rates of recidivism in American prisons in an attempt to create a more socially just society for all. Ashley offers presentations, workshops, group facilitation, and consultations specializing in racial trauma, mental health, crisis response, social justice, and racial equity. It's interesting. In a world today, Ashley sticks out as someone who's trying to disrupt the system of mental health. That's what this episode's about. Breaking down what has been, quote unquote, the norm of the mental health world and why it needs to change and for who it needs to change for and about. I'm super excited to have Ashley on. Let's get right into it. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. We got Ashley McGirt here and, you know, her 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 content and her um, Instagram account popped up because it's just so powerful and amazing and honest. And for some reason, I guess the honesty things find me, but really it was like a CBS morning show that popped up that you did a while back that came through. And I just fell in love with how you talk what you say and how you say it. So I had to reach out and be like, Hey, let's get this going. So Ashley, can you introduce yourself to the listeners so we can kind of get to know you a little bit and get right into it? Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Ashley McGirt, pronouns she, her. I'm a licensed clinician based out of Seattle, and I'm also the founder of the Therapy Fund Foundation, a nonprofit organization that provides free therapy to Black community members, as well as tuition assistance, peer support, and really anything that is going to eliminate the barrier to healing for our community. And you know, it's so interesting that I've had uh, the Black therapist on, Aaron Muller. Um, I've had Stevan Lewis and uh, and Jay Barnett on the show. And it's so interesting because as you can either, if people know me, I'm a white Jewish guy uh, and not part of the Black community. And I love hearing the different struggles and perspectives that impact mental health, which run, runs through everyone, but shows up and stands out differently. So uh, the first question I have on my mind is what is the distinction that comes through in the mental health world that looks different or needs a different focus because every single person needs a tailored every single culture needs a tailored perspective it's not just a one-stop shop for anyone. So what what how does it look differently for the people who might not know who are uneducated or don't don't know anything about anyone. Right. And honestly, it looks different for everyone. We are not a monolith and you cannot take one evidence-based practice and apply it on and for all people. So you really have to get creative 
and look at the unique needs of the individual and what you're working with. And then me, since I specialize in racial trauma and I'm typically working with communities of color, there are certain ways that communities of color respond to trauma. So when you're looking at the DSM and how we diagnose you also have to be looking at what are some inherent biases that may be present. How can you maybe mistake one illness for one person based on their racial ethnicity and deem it another for another person? So for example, there's a, an amazing book called How Schizophrenia Became a Black Illness. And we know that a white male may walk into a, a psychiatric hospital with the same signs and symptoms of a black male, but the white male is going to be diagnosed with bipolar polar versus the black male is going to be diagnosed with schizophrenia because, you know, that's the more scarier illness. Bipolar is more manageable. All of these things that come into play really in part to racism and, of course, biases that come up to come come in part. So, yeah, everyone. That's exactly what I was I was hoping you'd say. I, I used to work in a psychiatric hospital uh, for about 10 months when I first started working as a therapist. And the numbers were pretty skewed. I'm going to be totally honest about um, how many black people we had with more severe DSM diagnostics than the white community. And I remember asking my supervisor if there was any, you know, knowledge, research, understanding. And this was about eight years ago. Mm -hmm. Like, no, I guess it's just a coincidence. We... We're in the Upper East Side. We were East 96 and first in the city, close to Harlem. It's like, well, because we're here. But there are so many hospitals in the city, right? And I'm sure those numbers are skewed in all the hospitals. Um, right. I don't think it's just the location. And, and to me, it, it really bugs me because when I was in the in the hospital, I saw such um, need for help, but not enough representation of similarity that someone could understand the help that was needed. So can you speak to some of the racial trauma and the way that it can manifest and some of the things that you notice as an expert and professional that can enlighten some people on what that kind of look like looks like potentially? Yeah, definitely. Racial trauma is so insidious and pervasive and it shows up in almost every aspect of care. And like you, I also worked in a psychiatric facility for a number of years, and I've seen some of the same things. I also saw that the people of color had longer stays, and there were a number of reasons in which they were hospitalized longer than maybe their white counterparts. And there's so many issues, just even starting with simple things like hair care products that are available in hospitals and psychiatric facilities that may not represent or be be applicable to people of color and how they show up and how they can maintain their proper hygiene and aesthetics. So starting right there. Um, but some of the differences when it comes to racialized trauma is going to be identity. It's constantly happening. It's not something that someone can necessarily heal from. It's something that they have to cope with. Because racism is not going to end tomorrow unless there's some miracle or act of God or or force that really changes all of these systemic issues. So I really see it in every aspect of care. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think something that that we're trying to do in the mental health world is really create. I'll back up for a second, because this is a question, because, you know, you look at your website and it's first of all, it's an amazing website. <laughs> I, it's so Thank well you. done. <laughs> Whoever you, if you did it yourself, awesome. If you didn't, awesome. I don't know. It was, it's great. It's so well done. 
Um, you, you have a picture with a DSM in your hand and a few, a few of the uh, pictures. And, yeah. and there's like a controversy over the DSM being something that we like or don't like as mental health professionals. And I wanted to know, because to me, the DSM is not an, an inclusive book or, or, you know, identifier for mental health across all boards. So is that the reason you had pictures with it? Or is, is, <laughs> are you trying really, to show shade? Really branding. Honestly, do I love the DSM? Absolutely not. The DSM has harmed so many communities, especially people who look like me. I mean, at one point, we know that homosexuality was listed in the DSM. We also know things like drapetomania for an enslaved person who wants to be free. They were listed mentally ill because they wanted some aspect of freedom. So I'm very well, well aware of the controversies and how harmful the DSM can be. Um, And I also understand how the DSM has been able to help individuals when they've been able to receive that diagnosis and have that aha moment like, hey, this is actually an illness. This is a disease that is treatable, that is manageable, that that can be cured, that I can work through. Um, And sometimes when you give somebody that label, they continue to perpetuate that label and it creates a pattern of harm. So it can be a double-edged sword in some aspect, you know, racial trauma for one isn't even in the DSM. It's not something that's recognized. Uh, racism, there's lots of conversations around, should that be a mental illness? What does mm-hmm. that look like? That's a that's a whole nother podcast, a whole nother episode. But really it was just a branding thing. I'm a clinician. The DSM is the tool that I have to utilize because I am a licensed clinician. And if and when I choose to bill insurance, you know, I gotta have those diagnoses in order to receive reimbursements. I 100% agree. I just realized that, you know, you had a picture of DSM on a lot of the pictures and I'm like, you know, branding thing. Yeah, I love it. I love the honesty. Actually, <laughs> I love it. Um, and in that in that light, you know, you talk about even on your website, you know, one of the I did some I did some research and try, you know, try to do some you talk about why you don't take insurance. And the answer is so beautiful. Right. Mm-hmm about the idea of putting people in boxes and identifying and issues that have to be defined within a book and all that kind of stuff. What are some of the things that you see in the community that you serve that isn't in that book or isn't explained well, or something that isn't as defining as a title? Well, for starters, racial trauma, like I just said, is not in the DSM. And for very good reason, I always liken it to grief because grief is not a diagnosis. It's a normal response to loss. Racial trauma is a normal response to racism. Can it form and manifest itself into things like major depression, anxiety, all of the other things? Yes, it can. Same thing can happen with grief. Grief can turn into major depression, anxiety, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, and what else? I don't remember the question. What else is in the DSM that I don't necessarily agree with? No, the, the idea of like, <laughs> <laughs> no, the idea of what isn't really there that your community needs to be there or doesn't show up or isn't as identifiable as like a, a label in a book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I see where I was going with that. So yeah, again, like I said, racial trauma isn't in there. A lot of cultural nuances are not in the DSM that are not explained. And you really have to be a part of the culture to really understand some of these things and how it could be looked at under the lens of the DSM as something that's mentally ill. Um, Let's see. Let me think of an example. 
something that has come up, I'll say maybe a person listening to music, saying the things out loud, motioning, it could come off in some instances as erratic or they're some they're behaving in a certain way that is not characteristic to the norm of how someone in that particular instance should be responding. Um, but what you don't know is that they actually have um, AirPods in or the beats that blend in and they kind of um, blend in with skin tone. And <laughs> you can't necessarily see that. So you don't know what's going on. And you think they're responding in a certain way that is abnormal. And again, mm-hmm. who defines what normal is? And that's what the DSM is. It's a group of individuals who came together collectively and are defining the norms and what is abnormal and how we show up. So there's there's thousands of things that aren't in there <laughs> that we don't understand. And that those of us who again, are operating from when this, within this system, because we don't have to choose to be clinicians. It's a choice for me to show up and operate within this system in, in hopes to decolonize and disrupt this system, but also understanding its rules, its nuances, and all of that is are some of the things within the DSM. And I love that word disruptor, because I think it's it's it has a bad rep, but I think it has such a big need, because I think I remember when I used to work for organization, one of the killers of organizations is, well, it's always done this way. So let's continue doing that way. Don't question, don't ask, don't push back. Don't, don't rock the boat. It's always worked. So it will always work. And if you look at social psychology and studies, that is one of the biggest killers of societies and culture because we have to adapt, we have to pivot, and we have to change. We have to evolve as, as as human beings and as organizations. So what are some of the things that you're trying to disrupt in the in the system that is being a clinician or the mental health world that is shaking the foundation in such a good way? And and have you got any pushback? And what has that been like? Well, let's see. How much time do you have? <laughs> as much time as you want to give me. Awesome, because we really need to disrupt the entire system. Um, The way in which the world of therapy was birthed, when we look at Sigmund Freud and some of our our founding fathers, William Watt, all of these different individuals, and how it was really birthed from anthropology, which was really utilized to help show how people of color were lesser than, um, and that a certain group of individuals were better than those individuals. Um, So we have to look at the way that we treat. So we need to disrupt that. How do we recognize what is an illness and what is not? Who is able to get in the door? I am a Black female clinician. I was able to pass the state-mandated test. I was able to do all of my hours and show up. Many of us are not able to. There was a study that just came out that showed that 70% of the people who are passing these tests to become clinicians are white women. So who's the rest of the population? I have friends, um, other Black clinicians who are still practicing at an associate level because they haven't been able to pass this test. So they're still under clinical supervision of another person because of all of the biases and the things when it comes to test taking. So we need to redo that. We need to look at um, how 
insurance looks at illnesses from a crisis-centered model and not a preventative model. As I mentioned earlier, if I don't have a diagnosis, insurance isn't going to reimburse me because they're going to sit there and think we're just sitting there chatting it up on a couch and it's not an actual scientific thing that we are doing to help you improve your mental health or because you don't necessarily need a diagnosis in the DSM that you don't need to talk to me, that it's not preventative care. So we need to change that. We need to disrupt that. Um, we need to disrupt how are we looking at who are the people who are being taught. I, I went to some of the best institutions in the world, University of Washington, top 10 school, Harvard. Um, and they're not, they didn't teach me about Kenneth and Mammy Clark. I learned about that from attending an HBCU, a historically black college and university. I went to Clark Atlanta University, and that is where I learned about Kenneth and Mammy Clark and other black psychologists and other psychologists of colors um, that were not taught in the PWIs that I attended. So again, I could go down a whole list. That's why I'm like, how much time do you have from the way that we treat, from the way that we bill, reimburse, from who's being let in the door, the cost. Cost me over $100,000 to attain these degrees. Many people cannot do that, especially when you look at certain um, people from religious backgrounds, certain Muslims, it's against their religion to take on debt. So if they cannot afford, then they feel like they are going against their religious beliefs and we need um, more Muslims, more Christians, more Jews, all of these things within the field because representation matters. And we put up these when we put up these barriers in place, it says that therapy is for this group and therapy isn't for that group. And historically, therapy has been for the white and the wealthy. And I, I know it's interesting that I went to Fordham grad school in New York. And I felt at a disadvantage because I was a man, because I was one of 10 in hundreds and hundreds of people trying to graduate and fight for spots for careers. Mm -hmm. And it was mostly women. And looking at the diversity of Fordham, it was kind of diverse. I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I know in my core co cohort, it was mostly women of color and me, um, <laughs> white Jewish boy from New York, you know, and I, and I liked that because, and when I worked in a, in a clinic, it was diverse because we were in Queens in New York. We, we needed that. We were Queens is one of the most diverse places in the country. But if you start going a little away from kind of the more populated areas, it's not. It's just yeah. not. And people feel unseen and alone as clients. They feel misunderstood or don't even want to go. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that I remember talking to a lot of, you know, uh, other people who have had the show. And the idea of how treatment is different. Can you talk to how treatment is different for the black community and why people maybe historically don't go to therapy or don't look to therapy and kind of how that hopefully is changing or what we're doing to change that? Yeah. Um, so historically, when people of color, specifically the black community, was treated under a therapeutic lens, it ended them, it led to them 
being held against their will, psychiatric holds, it led to them losing their children, losing their jobs. It had a lot of harmful ramifications um, associated with it. It led to overdiagnosing, misdiagnosing, um, incorrect medication management, all of these things that created this stigma around mental health and mental illness as a whole. Um, So no, we don't want to go to that person, especially when you hear the word social worker, because social worker is often associated with CPS, child protective services, and all of these things where I'm going to lose my children, I'm going to lose my rights, which is often what happened when we shared these things in what was supposed to be a safe space, a private space with our clinician, but maybe they didn't recognize or understand things within our culture. Um, And then they use that against the community and the community is like, well, I'm not going to go to that person because I've seen what happened when Mm -hmm. maybe my uncle went there, my grandfather went there and it becomes generational and they don't look like me. They don't understand me. This is actually why I became a clinician when my grandmother passed away. Um, I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. When my grandmother passed away, there were no clinicians of color around. So I ended up seeing a white counselor. She didn't understand the role of grandmother in Black families. She just told me, you know, it's the normal cycle of life. She was old. Um, Pretty much that's what happens. My grandmother was 62 years old. She died Mm. from a stroke because she was extremely stressed out. And she dealt with racism day in and day out, which cut her life short. And she didn't have the outlets that she needed that potentially would have prolonged her life. And so here I am, nine years old, seeing this white clinician who's telling me what the normal cycle of life is and does doesn't understand things within my culture and is asking me lots of questions to then educate a grown white woman on what life is like for a black child in America. Mm-hmm. And that's just simply not okay. And, and to me, like the first thing I have is, well, that's just a really stupid clinician. Right. That, that's the first you thought say I that. have. You but say there's, that, a, but that's there's who... another part of it, another perspective <laughs> that is a lack of knowledge and understanding as well as, well, if they were like me, they might know. Yep. Right. And, and that's to, not, not not always the case. And no, our, yeah, of course. Because people of color still uphold white supremacy and all of these harmful things. So we know, like, well, we say all skin folk and kin folk. And just because you put a black or a brown person in a position doesn't mean things are going to change. Yeah. And I love that you said that because I know when I was in grad school and that was like eh, 10 years ago or so. <laughs> oh my gosh, 10 years ago. Okay. Um, that we, we talked about a lot of things of being culturally understanding and aware. We had readings, but it's not the same, right? Because you're not just because you read a lot doesn't mean you know a lot. And it's or you generally one lot. course, right? Uh, which one? Oppression <laughs> is one course. Right? Uh, okay, you had a course on oppression. Okay. A whole, oh, we had a whole semester, a whole. Uh, Six months, five, whatever, however long a semester is in grad school, we had, um, you know, idea of oppression and race um, and culture was like one. And of course, you need more than one semester to talk about that. It's like it's probably. I didn't old. even get more than one. So yeah, we have, but that's doing good. That's why I chose it because it's more of a uh, well-rounded program than a and then a focused. But still, I-, I would never claim to know a damn thing about the black community more than someone who actually has gone through it and is a part of it. But, you know, 
the question I have is from a clinician's perspective, isn't there a part that we're always going to have a lack of knowledge and trying to understand the people that we're working with by asking questions and understanding them so we can help them? And where is that line between being uneducated in a stupid way or uneducated in a, I'm trying to learn more about you to help you? So if that question makes sense. It, it definitely makes sense. And I would say, how much time are you utilizing in that session to ask that client questions to help you? If that's becoming every session, you may need to refer that client out mm. because you are not equipped with the skills or the knowledge or the cultural awareness to be able to help them. Because one, oftentimes their insurance is paying for it. They're paying for it out of pocket. Someone is paying you. Therapy is not a free thing, or even if an organization like mine, the Therapy Fund Foundation is paying for it, someone is still paying and you should not be utilizing those funds for you to get your education. Um, So of course, asking questions, the client is your teacher, but they are not meant to teach you all things. Um, And again, um, just checking in with yourself, acknowledging your own privileges, doing your own work, recognizing, I do not know this. And, but how many times are you saying that in the session? I don't know this. Can you tell me? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And it's like, look, if you don't know this, I don't think you're the right person for me, sis, because what do you know? I don't want to hear I don't know this 10, 20 times. And I was nine <laughs> years old when this was happening to me. So I didn't I didn't have the language to articulate like, hey, what's going on? I just knew that this white clinician was asking me all of these things mm-hmm. about um, my experiences as a black child in America. And I never got to talk about the grief that I was experiencing from the loss of my grandmother and what that meant to me. It was like, no, this is normal. You're she, giving a cat. You're giving a cat. You're giving her a TED talk, basically. Right, exactly. <laughs> and not nine. getting therapy. <laughs> At nine. So it's it's not okay. And nobody expects you to be an expert. The client is the expert in their own life. But at some point, you need to be able to do some sort of work with this person that you're seeing, um, especially if you plan to work with diverse communities. Um, Or again, have that referral system. You know, I'm not a relationship therapist, so I'm not going to go out and take all the Gottman trainings and and try to do all of these things because that's not me. I don't want to do that. But I know amazing relationship clinicians who I can refer you to. So know what your lane is. Um, so yeah. Uh, and then I, I love that. Um, cause you know, recently I had a, a clinician that I, I stopped working with because I was educating them on Judaism and, exactly. and I was like, and, and, and she was very sweet and very nice. She was not doing anything ethically or morally wrong. She wasn't hurting me. Like nothing was wrong. It was just annoying when she's like, Oh, what's that? Oh, what's that? Oh, what's that? And every session I was basically talking about and explaining Jewish concepts when I was talking about marriage or parenting or, and, and these concepts, once you break it down is not a ridiculous thing to know, but if you don't know, you don't know. It's just, you know, and I want to flip it on its head for a second about the opposite side where you go to someone who maybe would seem to understand same culture, background. And as a client, you expect them to know. How does that translate into the therapy process that you've seen? Whereas like, finally, I found a black therapist or for me, a Jewish therapist or a Jude 
or a guy or a woman. Finally, I found someone that takes my insurance or I can afford them. They're in my area. They're in my community. Oh, so excited. And they ask a question. You're like, seriously? So how do you deal with that? The other side. And I've actually had this lived experience. So this was me um, to an extent. And this is where you have to understand where there's certain cultural differences. So it's very difficult to find a Black clinician in Washington like it is across the United States. There's 0.02% Black psychologists in the field. So the numbers are very small. Um, Social workers, LMFTs, very small, small amount of us. And then me being in the field, I know most of them. So I had to go really far and wide to find a Black clinician. I ended up seeing an African woman. I am African-American. And there's differences between Africans and African-Americans. So head on, I thought we are both Black. We both understand what it's like to be Black in America. I was reaching out due to some... um discrimination that I was experiencing in the workplace at the time. And this woman just did not believe in racism. And some African members, they have a different view of slavery and the legacy of American chattel slavery and what it's done on our culture. And that has been something that has been divisive among the two cultures. So there's a lot of work on trying to bridge those within the diaspora because of these different beliefs and how we view each other um, as those who are born here in America and came under slavery and those who came uh, freely or however they came from Africa as Mm -hmm. um, immigrants and things of that nature. And we clashed. We clashed. And so I will tell you, that was my my lived experience. I didn't understand how she became a clinician. I will never refer that person to anyone. Um, it didn't last long. Also, I was paying for it out of pocket. First, I was like, let me give it a chance. Okay, maybe she doesn't really understand. And then it became like a debate and very argumentative mm. in the sessions. Um, and that's my lived experience. Uh, plenty of people have different experiences. And it could be something that's light and not harmful and you can work through it and you don't necessarily have to end the session. For me, it was something I had to end the session because I'm not going to be arguing about whether racism is a real concept with somebody who has black skin is going to be seen the same way as I am in America, but they just didn't have that awareness Mm -hmm. based on where they came from. And that's a concept that also Sometimes white folks don't understand because they're also like, well, y'all are all black and they group us together. But within our communities, there's definitely differences. Um, But yeah, again, like I said, maybe you can work through it. You in that relationship, you find someone new. I always tell people therapy is like dating. You know, you have to find that good fit before you really can merge. Um, I may not be the right therapist for you, but let's have a conversation about it. Hopefully I create a safe space where you can be open and honest about the work that we're doing together and what's not working for you, what's working for you. I open that door for my clients to have that conversation. Um, Each clinician is different in how they do that. I love that you said that. And I think the important lesson is that You should not stop until you find that person that fits your needs. And I always say this is a joke because, you know, I'm a therapist and I would love to work with people long term is if you find it, hang on, like, don't, (laughs) don't let go. Um, Because it's, it's, it's very hard to find someone that you click with who gets you. 
just who gets you. And yes. I get that question all the time. Like, what's the biggest importance in therapy? I'm like, you got to vibe with the person. You have to feel safe and connected to the person and that you're actually accomplishing something. And it's not yeah. what we're trying to avoid. Like the, the insurance companies think we do, which is just sit on a couch and chat. <laughs> right. Um, which, and the fact that they're defining how long treatment should be is a whole nother thing that makes me very angry as a clinician, because who are you to say that anxiety treatment should only last six weeks with this kind of style versus mm-hmm. eight months of a client's actual need or seven years, right? right? Like I just, that just makes me really pissed off as a therapist and a clinician. And, and um, that's a whole nother thing to begin with. <laughs> and that's also part of our advocacy work and changing that, disrupting that. You talked about disrupting, disrupting the system that puts parameters on how long you can see a client. I think it's ridiculous. And and you know, that's when so I was when I was in the psych hospital, that's what they did. They put parameters. And you know what happened to the people? My clients got medicated and dumped. Yep. Because they couldn't actually help someone. Because they that were is- forced to shove meds into their bodies get them to a quote unquote stable state, whatever that means, depending on the person and whatever the doctors felt at the time um, and just throw them out and be like, sorry, we can't treat you anymore. We're not getting paid. And I think that's a disgusting system that has a chaos, has chaos written all over it for the people that need help. What have you seen in the past couple of years? Because you said you used to be um, and I'm sure you still are because you didn't go away, a self-care expert guru awesomeness. And you've kind of changed tunes to something that's a passion drive and a part of you. And it's probably been a part of you forever. And you're now so beautifully representing um, racial trauma and how to combat it and, and how trauma and race coexist and how, and how to treat it and how to, and educating so many of us on what that looks like. What was the precipice of that shift and how have you seen it show up in the world the past couple of years? And how it's impacting your community and 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 anyone else um, of that matter. Yeah, definitely. So the two have always been at the core of who I am and the work that I do. So I'm a social justice advocate. I've been a part of the NAACP, the Urban League, all of these different things since I was yay high. My grandmother was a social justice advocate, so I would be going out to rallies and protest with her. So it was always embedded um, in what I did. Just as a human being and who Ashley is. Um, But oftentimes people would reach out to me. So I'll have my list of things that I do. Cause in addition to being a clinician, I'm also a speaker, a facilitator. I consult with corporations. So they'll see my list of subjects that I speak on. And they would often reach out to me to come talk to their employees or their students about self-care, but racial trauma, understanding the impact that racism has on our mental health was always a core subject. Were people calling me for that? No, not really. Sometimes every once in a while, people would book a workshop or a training like that. Then when the George Floyd protest happened and everyone was talking about race and social justice, um, my phone couldn't stop ringing to have me come in and talk about racial trauma. But that was always an area of focus for me. It was always on my website. It was always presented in my packet. So it really was based on the need and booking because at the this is also a business. I do get paid to do this work. So who's booking me? I also do this thing, do this for volunteer and I show up in community, but just in terms of the pivot and the shift that came on, came by. 
who's booking the most workshops? What are the topics? There was a period where a lot of people were booking my mental health and entrepreneurship workshops. And I don't know how that happened. Maybe somebody told somebody and it just kept coming. And that was the topic. But again, self-care, always core, racial trauma, always core. Just there was a shift in society where more people want to talk about one thing. And again, I always embed self-care into it because how can you deal with racism when it's not going to end? You have to care for yourself. You have to find ways to incorporate joy. You have to find ways to live well with a smile on your face. How do you smile um, after knowing that Tyree Nichols was viciously murdered by folks who looked like him? Yeah. How do you smile when George Floyd was um, choked to death for nine minutes? Um, how do you do these things? And that goes back to self-care and, and finding poor things that make you laugh and that um, bring up wellness for you, despite of the chaos, despite the world going up in flames. So you can still show up and be well. Because the majority of us who are invested in these things, those of us who are social justice advocates and are on the front lines, you know, we see these things day in and day out and we can become numb to it, desensitized, all of these things that can create harms on our bodies. So then we have to care for ourselves. And that's how I got the whole self-claimed guru thing. And if you haven't noticed, I'm a Black woman. I, I came into this world Black, um, uh, identify as the woman that I am. And I would often speak to other Black women. And I would always hear Black women say that their self-care is getting their hair done and their nails done. Uh, I don't know if this is a video recording, but I have faux locks in my hair right now. And it took probably 12 hours to do this. And it was not fun. My butt was hurting. I had to keep taking breaks, standing up. Nothing about getting this hairstyle was self-care. Does it look cute? Yes. Was the <laughs> process fun? Absolutely not. So I was like, how is getting your hair and your nails done self-care? When I get my nails done, like they're cutting my cuticles. It hurts. It's not fun. There's a ton of people in there. Um, it's not a meditative state of self-care unless you go to like a private one. They come to your house. I don't know. You pay extra money for whatever you do. But when I was hearing that, I'm like, that's not self-care, sis. That's basic hygiene. And it's not fun. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's fun for you, but it's not fun for me. So I was like, I, I started having conversations with Black women around reef framing what self-care is. One, it has to be something that's all about you. If I'm getting my nails done in a salon with 10 other people, how is that just about me? You're hearing all of their conversations. You're getting that energy, the chaos. It needs to be something that's just about you. It needs to nourish your mind, your body, your spirit. It needs to uplift you. Um, and maybe getting your hair done and your nails does just do that for you. And if it does, then fine. But for me, no, it's basic hygiene and it ain't fun. That's what I love. I love what you said. You're just so, first of all, I, I would love to stop the the the, uh, the podcast on that last piece because that was just, okay. that was, no, no, not the, not the self-care thing was hilarious, but I'm uh, talking about like the other part of how impactful the world has been around us and the need um, and how we deal with that. You know. I'm I'm not here to compare any way, but I know for a lot of my friends in my community, the past couple of years of anti-Semitism has been heightened and we don't know how to deal with it. 
Yeah. We don't like, I, I, I'm, I'm not saying that I talk about it every day with my, my family or like, have you oh, seen you people? I know. <laughs> you watch it. It's I'm going to watch it tonight or this week. It's okay. just out and I'm like, I said to my wife, I'm like, Ariella, we got to watch this. This looks hilarious. Not um, to be that person, like you're a Jew. Have you watched the show? Yeah, no, no, but it's hey. But they no. have a conversation about this, and it's absolutely hilarious. I'm sure it's hilarious. I mean, Eddie Murphy, Jonah Hill. I mean, what can go wrong? Uh, everything, everything go wrong. Right. That's, what, that's so the best part things. of it, right? But, but like, when you said that, I started thinking about the conversation. <laughs> yeah. No, but like it's true because I don't think that we're taught how to take care of ourselves when these things are constantly spoken about. And I know that there are like two or three conversations in the Jewish community that get repeated over and over and over again. And that's Holocaust, that's anti-Semitism, and we're never going to let this happen again, right? Kind of things. Right. Well, it's, it happens. And and we don't know, and we get, and there's, you know, we don't we don't know how to deal with it in our communities. We don't know how to talk about it. And we don't know how to, how to heal or even take care of ourselves when it does happen. We just freak out and get overwhelmed and stressed. And in the last couple of minutes that we have, I'd love to hear your perspective on some of the things that you have seen as racial trauma that come out in a day-to-day look. Now, I know we're talking general here. I know it's individualized person to person, but how that looks in a general perspective. And maybe if you can give one to three tips or ideas or takeaways for people who are listening, who maybe can understand that they're going through racial trauma, but never realized it or are going through some traumatic experience and are, you know, having some ripple effect that they never noticed before. And it's just coming out now. And they're like, Holy crap. What is this? Right. And racial trauma is very similar to PTSD. It's just unique in the fact that it's constantly happening. And it's that physical and emotional reaction to racism, whether it's real or perceived, those microaggressions, those macroaggressions, Tyree Nichols, George Floyd. Um, if you say, say you work in the IT department and then the company comes and asks you to head up the diversity department, that is a form of racial trauma. Then you're going to still be expected to do your normal job duties on top of heading off this diversity department. Where is your background in diversity? Why were you asked to do that? Because you're the one person of color. All of that is racial trauma. And how does it show up and manifest itself? Um, Like you said, it's different and unique for each person, for some people, it's through confusion, through fear, hypervigilance, shame, physiological reactions, um, especially with our youth, the young kids, because oftentimes they don't have the language to articulate what it is that they're going through when they're experiencing. So they'll start to have nosebleeds. Um Neck stress, headaches, migraines, debilitating stress, um, nightmares inability to sleep, difficulty concentrating. These are some of the things that we see and how racial trauma shows up for individuals. Some people may have all of these. Some people may just experience one. Some people may have avoidant behaviors because maybe they experienced racial trauma somewhere, or even if they didn't experience it, someone who looked like them experienced it. So they're going to avoid those places. They're going to avoid going to the grocery store. They're going to, I don't know, try to live off Amazon Prime, um, order everything, Instacart, so that they don't have to have interactions. Try to find grocery stores um, by people of color, which 
where I'm I'm in going between Seattle and San Diego, there's I don't know that there's not one black owned grocery store. There's some Asian grocery stores and some Hispanic grocery stores that you can go to, but it's going to be very difficult to try to do your business. There was um a Netflix documentary, gosh, what's his name? Big Mike, I think his name is. Um, I'm drawing a blank on his name. He did a campaign thing a lot for Bernie Sanders, but he has a show on Netflix where he tried to like do everything black. Uh, find a black owned hotel, find like um, laundry detergent, all of these things. He couldn't make it the day. It just wasn't possible. So I say that to say sometimes people will try to do that, um, try to isolate. Um, Some people just question themselves. um, Maybe if I wore my hair this way or did that, or maybe if I didn't have a hoodie on, but we forget they were lynching folks in three-piece suits. So it really doesn't matter how you dress. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so these are just all of the things that we see when it comes to racialized trauma um, and how folks show up. Sadness, exhaustion, overwhelming fatigue. You know, is a pretty blunt question, but I think you have the the guts and the honesty to answer it. How does someone live their day to day? You said before it's not ending, right? It's something you said before. Racism is not going anywhere, and uh, the sad hard truth. Mm-hmm. Um, how does how do you get through the day? How do you do that? How do you deal with that? Um, and I'd love to hear perspective as a as a person and mm-hmm. as a therapist, which I know is one and the same, but. Two different yeah. hats and maybe voices and perspectives, but how do you get through the day when you're constantly being bombarded by messages and whether it's perceived or outward, straight up in your face? Um, how do you get through that kind of life? You really, you really just cope. You find healthy ways of coping. For me, it's laughter. I love to laugh. Um, almost all of my best friends are comedians. I don't know how it happened, but somehow I've surrounded myself with a ton of people who are comedians. Um, I used to go to Nate Jackson's super funny comedy club every week. He owns one of the only black owned comedy clubs in the nation um, in Washington state. And even when I'm in San Diego or other places or New York, I'm always looking at where's the comedy place? How can I laugh? But that's me. That's what brings joy to my life is laughing at every moment, especially because I was a hospice clinician for a number of years. So when you're sitting at the bedside of the dying, you need to do something that uplifts you and brings you joy. Um, So for you, maybe that's going for walks, um, entertainment, listening to music, dancing, um, having some sort of wellness routine, journaling, what makes you smile? What lights up your life? Spending time with your family, your friends. And maybe that's like a no, I ain't trying to spend time with my family. So that's not going to be it for you. You need to find the thing that's going to make you laugh. Maybe for you, it's not comedy because no, I don't want to hear them talking about racist jokes, political jokes, all of those things. So that's not it. That's the Ashley thing. Like I'll sit and I'll laugh at whatever the case may be. Um, But yeah, so just again, find that thing that makes you laugh. And if you don't know, write it down. The next time you laugh, what made you laugh? Were you watching a movie? Um, Did somebody tell you a joke? Did somebody walk by? Hopefully it's not just somebody walking by on the side of the street and you're laughing at them. But what is putting a smile on your face? When's the last time you've literally been bent over just laughing in complete hysteria? 
And if you can't think about that, then that means you're not doing enough things to bring joy in your life because you need to laugh. You need to smile. Um, Surface. I get joy out of giving back to others. It's why I started the Therapy Fund Foundation. I love to be able to provide wellness to folks. That gives me joy. And I'm not saying start a foundation because it is hard, hard work. Um, But if you can, do it. Um, But again, just look at what can you do. Maybe it's showing up, um, feeding the unhoused, um, giving away blankets, donating the clothes in your closet that you haven't worn that have been sitting in there and you're waiting for that day when you can fit them again. Just go ahead and donate them and change somebody's life. And that may put a smile on your face. But yeah, that's that's how we get through those. That's how I get through um, and how we're going to stay well is through joy. And, you and, know, I rest. Think, and rest, rest, joy and rest. And I think that that's just a great lesson to, to end off on for anyone um, that we need to do that more for ourselves, no matter what community background culture you're in. Joy and rest are, are the most important things that you can do because life is very difficult and life is bombarded with stress and, and it is a sad sometimes world to be in and an overwhelming world, but it also has pockets of joy that are worth uh, so much to us. And and Ashley, um, if you can kind of tell us what's going on. I know you got some cool things happening uh, in July or June in the summer. So if you can kind of let everyone know what's going on in your world and where people can kind of contact you for more. It's all going to be in the show notes, but love to hear it from the people themselves. Yes, definitely. So you can connect with me on socials, pretty much everything at Therapy with Ash. And in the summer, Uh, Actually, during July, during BIPOC Mental Health Awareness Month, we are putting on our inaugural Behavioral Health Conference and Resource Fair, which is dedicated toward improving mental health outcomes for communities of color. Super excited about it. Ruth King is our keynote. We're going to have nine dynamic workshops from a number of different clinicians. Speaking of the DSM, Dr. Patrice Douglas is going to be doing her workshop on DSM for the culture and really breaking down understanding the DSM in ways that apply to and for the culture. Um, It's going to be in person, like right outside of Seattle, not too far, but it's also going to be streamed virtually for those who may not be in or around the Seattle area. So you could definitely hop on, catch the virtual live stream. Amazing. Good for you. Again, Ashley, thank you so much for all you're doing. And thank you so much for showing up on the show today. I appreciate it. Thanks. And find your joy and watch you people. (laughs) Thank you so much to listening to this week's episode of the Dude Therapist. And it only is happening because of you, the listeners, tuning in every week, even twice a week. To this show, all about mental health, relationships, and wellness topics. And really, let's be honest, everything in between. And I'm so excited to show up every time and having great guests. So, thank you. And if you have any questions, concerns, ideas, collaborations, email me at thedudetherapist at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at thedudetherapist. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know your ideas. I can't wait to hear from you. And if you can go along, subscribe, rate, review on all the streaming sites that you're listening on. I truly appreciate it because that's what makes this thing happen. So thanks for tuning in this week and see you next time on the Dude Therapist Podcast. So we've got more guests and more great content coming your way.